0: I uh word on the street is that uh Laura Nowotny won first and second place for the chili cook-off. I mean, that's serious, right? Debbie Bell, cornbread, she won the cornbread, took the cornbread trophy on. It's all it's all, you know, anonymous, so nobody knows who's, you know, given what. And so to to take down first and second, I don't know. I'm just saying I think maybe we should all just show up at the Nowotny's for dinner tonight after church and knock on the door and say, All right, Laura, let's see what you got, right? So um, I, you know, we were away at my 25-year college reunion, I was talking to somebody about it this week, and, and, I, and we were just sharing about it, and they said, you mean your 25-year high school reunion? And I said, no, my 25 college, they said, how old are you? It's like, thanks, right? That makes me feel really good about myself. And so, but I was looking at some of the pictures on Facebook, some of the costumes that you all did were pretty amazing, right? How many people knew the church were surprised at how how far they go with the costumes? Anybody? Or you just knew that we're over the top already, so you knew it was going to be big. So obviously you knew my favorite costume was Pastor Jamie coming as me, right, when he he showed up and said, all right, this mic is just giving me a fit, so. I'm not going to be able to talk with my hands tonight. It's going to be very difficult, so all right. We all have our things to overcome in life, right? So see, the uh, but but see the thing that you should have known right away that made him an imposter is that there were some wrinkles in his shirt that should not have been there. I'm just saying. So if, if he's gonna if he's gonna do the impersonation, he should bring it all the way. Cause I heard there were books and mugs and glasses on the nose and a few sayings and the concealed carry weapon. You know, he had all the things, but he the, the iron was, I'm just saying, wasn't quite present. So that's how you'll always know. you know, In the Bible, there's all these things given to you know if it's really Jesus, right? So there's things that you can always know. Is that really Pastor Fred? And there, there will not be wrinkles. So I'm just saying. All right, just helping you out a little bit helping you out, so. Hey, we're uh, in this series called uh, Project Hope. I, I think we're going to get into, I think it might even spill over into the first week of December. I, I've been doing some more study this week, and in First Thessalonians, I don't think I'm going to be able to cover it all just through November. This has been an amazing journey of just following the word hope throughout Scripture, and so we're just going to see. I don't want to pull out of it too soon, and so we're going to see how it goes, but I, the study in First Thessalonians, it's going to be rich. We're going to, uh, not next week, because uh, uh, Joe J Jansen is going to be here from Elam Fellowship doing the marriage getaway, and then he's preaching at both campuses. It's going to be an amazing weekend. The weekend after that is where I'm going to come back here at this campus and pick up with 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to start with just talking about the, the relationship that exists between these three words, faith, hope, and love, that many of us are familiar with. But there's the it's the first time that Paul ever used it. 1 Corinthians uh, 13 gets, gets all the attention, uh, but it's in 1 Thessalonians actually where Paul in history first used that phrase together, those three words. So And there's something for us to garner there that I think a lot of us have never seen before. I had not seen it before until I began to study that. And so we're going to launch into that, and then we're going to get into the second coming of Christ. We're going to be talking a little bit about things that are going to happen at the end of time and the hope that we're supposed to have for that. It's going to be a great journey coming down the stretch for November all right, so we, this, in, this, in this series, we've been trying to make the point that, that all of us use this word hope so many times in life, but most of the time we're referencing an emotion. Most of the time, we're talking about a feeling, and that's not to disqualify that feeling. Those are important to us, but the Bible talks about hope as an emotion, but it also talks about hope as a virtue. It differentiates these two, and one of the texts that I've been putting in front of you every week is out of Romans 4.18, where it says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. This is a great example of moving out of a place of emotion and into a place of virtue, believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, that's how many descendants that you will have. When we have a promise from God and our circumstances seem to say that that promise is a lie, that's when the virtue of hope needs to kick in, that we're willing to trust what God said to us, beyond the reality of the circumstances of our moment and when we begin to move with that kind of hope it becomes a great witness to the world and that's what first Peter three fifteen is about that the people of the world who don't know God maybe people like we talked about tonight they're feeling a little bit lost and disconnected from God they should see something inside of us and one of the things they should see in us is the ability to hope again like Abraham when there was no reason for hope So Zechariah 9.12, just for a little bit of recap for why we're going to go in the direction that we're going to go in tonight. Uh, A few weeks ago, we've been asking the question, right, where does it appear the first time in the Old Testament? Where does it appear the last time? Again, we're following this word hope throughout Scripture, and so a few weeks ago, I asked that question that uh, when's the last time this word hope is used in the Old Testament, and it's Zechariah 9.12. I'm going to reference that verse a little bit later, but just to paraphrase it, it's where God gives this great promise to us where He says, hey, I'm going to repay you two blessings For every one trouble, two blessings for every one trouble. And as I read that several weeks ago, this is what I felt like God spoke to me. And so I wrote it down, and and this is what's launched us in this journey that we're wrapping up with kind of a series within a series. It says, God has a kingdom economy for us, one that is governed by his scripture and never transcended. By our conclusions, If you've been a devoted follower of Christ for any amount of time, you, you know what I'm talking about here. There are times where God asks us to embrace ideas and principles and truths that are completely counterintuitive to our human understanding and our human experience. An example of that is like what we shared a couple of weeks ago, that when it comes to giving, that there are times when God asks us to stand in a place of having less Because he's trying to position us into a place of receiving more. Now, in our human understanding, we would say, hey, why would I ever give if God's trying to get me to have? But that's part of this idea of the kingdom economy. It's just he works with a different kind of math than what we use in this earthly realm. And sometimes it can be perplexing. For the last couple of weeks, again, just to catch you up before we hit the last three tonight, we've talked about does the Bible have anything to say about a certain portion of giving? So we've been talking about this word tithe and what is that about? So we talked about a portion. We talked about a consequence. There's a consequence if we don't do the things that God asks of us. We talked about the idea of the priority of our giving specifically with tithe. We talked about the place that it should go. And we talked about the attitude in which we should give. Now, you can get all of those on the podcast or the notes. You can download them online, and we're going to hit the last three. And I've been sharing this each week, that these three messages are really me and our family saying to you, this is why we practice tithing as a family. You've got to decide for yourself, based on seeing these scriptures, what God is saying to you. Does that make sense? There's times where I'm going to really come at you and say, you should, but then there's a lot of times where I'm going to teach from the perspective, this is what we do, you've got to decide for yourself what scripture is speaking to you, and that's kind of the heart of what we've wanted this message to be over these few weeks. So we're going to cover three tonight, I think we're going to be able to get through them, and I want to talk a little bit about the idea of offerings, because you hear us use this term, tithes and offerings, and we use those two terms specifically because the Bible speaks to those words in very different ways. And so I want to talk a little bit about this and the journey that I had early on as a follower of Christ in discovering what those three things are. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Proverbs. We're going to start with 28, 27. Proverbs 28, 27. It says, whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to poverty will be cursed. Now, we talked about what this idea of curse is. It's not like God is Harry Potter in the heavens speaking incantations over us when we don't do what we're supposed to do. This idea of curse is that you're choosing to live outside of the boundaries that God gives to us, and when you choose to do that, you're choosing to forego his favor, and there's no life that would be more a curse than saying, I'm going to intentionally separate myself from him. Leviticus 19, 9, through 10. So the first one the emphasis on poor. This next one there's a mention of the poor but it's really about hospitality. Listen to what Leviticus says in chapter 19. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. And do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vine. Do not pick up grapes that fall into the ground. Leave them for the poor. And listen to what it also says. And for foreigners living among you, which means people that are in play, they're traveling. And so they're foreigners among you. This is the connotation in the Hebrew is that they're traveling, they're passing through because they didn't have any wawas back then. And I and the Lord your God. Now let me stop and talk about this one a little bit. This is this is I love this text because these things that God is asking them not to harvest represents an opportunity for them to advance their standard of living you know some of these landowners in old testament times they own huge tracts of land and so for them that was a lot of crop that they're supposed to leave in the field and you know that there were times where they wanted to maybe expand their business so they wanted to do things for their children or they wanted to build a bigger home right all the things that we can resonate with feeling today even though we're not in an ancient world we have those same needs And this is God saying to his people, hey, don't consume everything that I've given to you because there's supposed to be a portion that is set aside for generosity. Exodus 36, three through seven, Moses gave them the materials donated by the people of Israel as sacred offerings for the completion of the sanctuary but the people continued to bring additional gifts each morning finally the craftsmen who were working on the sanctuary left their work they went to Moses and reported the people have given more than enough materials to complete the job the lord has commanded us to do so here in these texts now we could create a bigger list but i think these are the most prominent mentionings of offerings and i'm going to give you one more of the new testament in just a minute But there was an expectation that God had of people then, and I think he still has it of people today, that beyond our tithe, beyond that 10% of our gross annual income, that part of our budget planning for our own personal resources that we should be prepared to give to the poor, we should be prepared to step into moments of hospitality, and we should be prepared to participate in various special projects that we feel committed and called to do. There, there's a great historian, an ancient historian by the name of josephus and if you if you if you're getting into the study of the history of the Bible this might be a good investment for you and i 've got a, a compilation of his works he he was born just after the death of Jesus, so he lived during biblical times. Now Josephus is an important voice for us because he 's what's called an extra biblical voice or an extra biblical reference because there are people in the world that they don't have the faith in Scripture that we have, and so Oftentimes we just use the Bible to support itself, but sometimes people in the secular world say, well, that's not fair. And so we turn to these extra biblical references and what we find is that they're saying the same thing that the Bible says. But one of the things that we find with Josephus is that he gives us incredible insight into Jewish culture because he was a Jewish man himself. And so he begins to write not just about what was happening as a contemporary to to biblical time, but he begins to write all about the history of the Israelites and all of their traditions and their practices. And it's in his writings that we garner some insight into what tithe meant for them because we have it easy. Because in Jewish people, in ancient times, in Old Testament time, they were expected to give 10% of their gross annual income for the, the, the cost in the ministry of, of the Levites and the priests and the temple. But then they were expected to set aside another 10%, so another up to 20%, up to, to, they would have money set aside to participate in all the feasts because all these feasts that we read about in the Bible, they cost them money to participate. The food and they're often traveled. So they were supposed to set aside another 10% so they could participate in all the feasts. And participating in the feast was required. It wasn't an option. So now they're up to 20%. And then every third year, Josephus believed, but some other historians believe that it was actually every year, there was another 10% that they were supposed to set aside to give specifically to the poor. So no matter what camp you're in, they were at least at 20 every year and an additional 10 up to 30 every third year. And then some people believe that 10% was actually an annual thing. So 30% of their gross annual income. And guess what? They had taxes too, right? They had kings and governments and on top of all that, right? So now you can say 10%, thank, praise God, I live in this time and era. So, so Josephus gives us all, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is not so much about the, the what, but it's, it's, it's saying, God, I want to live a life. generosity and all throughout scripture we see god extolling this virtue of generosity and so what we want to be as a church is a church that teaches us that we're going to have a hope to be the kind of generous people that god has called us to be all right so let me give you another one that i think is important this comes out of romans 15 romans 15 25 through 26 It says, but before I come, I must go to Jerusalem, this is Paul talking, Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Acacia have eagerly taken up offerings for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. And so here what we see is Paul saying, hey, there's been a gift that's been given to us from these churches here that's supposed to be shared with those churches over there. And and yes, there's an emphasis on the poor, but there's a a clarifier that's given to us, they were the poor of the believers of those churches. Now, why why am I sharing that with you? Because this is part of the heart of our church. It's part of our missions here, part of our missions giving here, part of our missions expenditures here, is is, is their money's used to bring the message of the gospel to places in the world where there is not a revelation of Jesus or maybe there's no active ministry. Maybe there's a missionary trying to do that. We support a missionary in China, which is a closed country, and so we're supporting him so he can bring the gospel there. But part of our missions is also going to be to support churches around the world that maybe the financial situation and circumstances that they face that they're not able to sustain themselves and so churches that maybe have more can give to those that have less and so what we find here is that offerings really carry these four main categories beyond my tithe I should be prepared to give to the poor share in hospitality and support special projects and be involved in missions. At the center of our family financial plan is the tithe. And then going beyond to accommodate offerings and other opportunities for generosity. I like to joke all the time in the Lord's Prayer where it says, give us this day our daily bread. God did not intend for us to eat the whole loaf. You tracking with me? That, that, That he's given all of us a measure And part of our Western mindset, and we have to be careful that we don't let our our cultural experience dilute the truth of God's word to us, we are gonna choose as devoted followers of Christ to live. We're just going to live at a lesser of standard living than maybe other people in similar places in life that we are because we value generosity in a different way, because it reflects the heart of the Father to the world. And when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, this was part of our prayer over people that came. Wasn't that awesome? People come and come on for courage. Can we just celebrate courage in people's hearts? So just another commercial break. So like we did a couple of weeks ago. I'm just If you came up, I just wanna encourage you, what you did tonight, don't stop doing that for the rest of your life. When you feel that God is speaking to you, when you feel his presence, don't be afraid to respond. Even if it makes you feel conspicuous, I'm telling you, that's part of your relationship with him. It's part of the journey with him, is that the Holy Spirit is gonna whisper things to you, prompt you in certain ways, and if you will continue to do that for the rest of your life, I'm telling you, you will never feel lost again. You might have moments of doubt, right, but not deep maybe where you felt tonight. That you can live in this relationship with God where he's present, where you feel his voice, and I'm just telling you, I hope you felt that tonight, and you can feel it forever. All right, back to our regularly scheduled program. You've got to make a decision. Am I going to let everything in this book define who I am? And sometimes what it means to... Live according to what God says to us. It means giving up some things. And you've got to decide whether or not you believe that God, being the perfect sovereign creator of the universe, knows better how to find the depth of meaning in life than maybe a world system that would offer us in contrast. All right, number two. No, actually, this is number two. Let me just talk a little bit about the church. So if you're visiting with us, we do this once a year, so you're just going kind to of endure this a little bit. But we like to show this chart every year in the fall, and we're going to start comparing it to the year before. And, uh, and so this is one of the things at our church. I, I don't look at giving. So if you have a – don't like come up after the service and give me I t- – I don't want to see what you give. I don't want to know what you give. That, that's part of how we do it here. None of our pastoral staff is ever going to know anything about giving. We don't see anything about giving, and that's because we're just flawed people – and, and if that makes you uncomfortable, then we're not going to be a great church for you, right? But I don't, I don't want to know what you give, right? Because if you call me at 3 o'clock in the morning with an emergency, and I know that you've never given to the church, I might not answer my phone, right? I'm just saying. But I don't know what you give, so I, so I answer. This is part of gee, We're just flawed people. So we're setting ourselves up for success here, right? I, it, it, we joke, but it happens in churches. Different people get different degrees of attention or maybe people need to be corrected or challenged and nobody's doing it because they give so much, right? That's not us. That's not us here at the City Life Church. So, but are there people that see it? Only people that are elected, right? So that's a function of elders and trustees and holding leaders accountable. And, and we're not looking at that stuff. And, and this is part of two that, that every year, and I think we're gonna have to do it more than once a year. I think we're gonna probably have to do it every six months. We're gonna bring this pie chart and say, well, what's happening at the City Life Church? So let me just show you, this is what's happening here. And then I've got the list of the actual names. I'm gonna close my eyes, but you can see them after. No, I'm just kidding. So this is 2013. of people, this is people who call this their church home, so not counting visitors. People that call this their church, 27% were were, were tithers, 19% gave but probably not at a level that was commensurate to 10% of their gross annual income. There's a little bit of guesswork there, obviously. Uh, 24% sporadic giving and 30% non-giving. So we we lost ground this year, church, and we can't do that. We we can't move backwards as a church family. So so we've got 37% this year, who, who don't don't give at all. And that's people who call this their church home. So what we're saying is you, you've you got to be invested here in some measure. You might not be ready to leap into this world of tithing, but you've at least got to get from here into here. Does that make sense? Move forward in this circle in some way. If you give sporadically, then move forward in this place of giving regularly. And if you're giving regularly, then we're hoping this teaching is going to prompt you to get into that place. I don't think, me personally, these two right here combined should be 25% or less than the church. Because this is people that call this their church home, right? Even, even if you say, well, I just don't have the resources, th- then give something, right? That all of us who call this their church home, if this is the place. I have, we have people that come here, military families, and then they might go to, they might get sent to somewhere else. And oftentimes they'll come and they'll say, hey, we want to continue to tithe here while we're gone. And this I say to this every time, every time, this is what I say. You, you can do that until you find another church. But when you find that church where you're going to, we don't want to see your checks coming in the mail here anymore because they belong in the church that you call home. Williamsburg, come on. They did some good stuff this year. Look at that. They went from 41% non-givers to 30% non-givers, right? That's good stuff for us with the new campus that was planted. That is the lamest clapping I have ever heard. Shame on you. I don't know. You clap louder last year when you did better than they did, but when they edged you out a little bit this year, right, then you're not as quite as enthusiastic. I don't know. We know how it goes. So. so their sporadic got a little bit bigger, but look, the tithing went up, and then non, uh, the giving regularly went from 21 to, to, to 14. So they, 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 they collectively made more ground because the total amount of giving is this area here which they really gained some ground. Now, you might say, this is, I don't know if you should really be showing this on Saturday night when visitors here. We're going to show this on Saturday because we want visitors to know who we are as a church, right? So I know we, We're not going to be that church that hides the one conversation so they think that we're something else. And so when they finally start coming, we're easing them. We're just saying on Saturday night, this is who we are. This is who we are as a church. It's part of our, our valuing here of authenticity and vulnerability. All right. All right, so let's talk about next steps. Let's talk about next steps. This is an important part of the journey. We save these until the final night. I' just gonna give you some practical things. Now, I'm not gonna to turn to these for the sake of time, but if you're a note taker, you can write down Proverbs 2.6 and Colossians 1.9. Proverbs 2.6 and Colossians 1.9. I wanted to give you an Old Testament reference and a New Testament uh, reference here because these three words are found throughout scripture often. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And sometimes they're used interchangeably. Sometimes these words are used as synonyms, but the fact that they're used as synonyms should not cause us to overlook the uniqueness that they each carry at times as well. And that's part of language. Sometimes they mean the same thing. Sometimes they mean something different, right? And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. I thought this meant that. No, it means that. Okay, right? Okay, the Bible's the same way. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Knowledge specifically means what the Bible contains. It's, It's about information. If you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, at some point you've got to get serious about studying God's Word, Just even if it's just reading it every day, because you've got to build your inventory of what's in this book. You've got to build your knowledge base. It's like with anything else, with, with learning, you've got to put in your time. And what happens is, as you begin to build your knowledge base, understanding, you can think of knowledge as the seed that produces the fruit of understanding. The more seed in your life, the more fruit that's going to come. Understanding is when it gets personal. Understanding is is all of a sudden when something I know is in the Bible means something personal for me. I know the Bible says that I should love my enemy, and you're reminded of that by the Holy Spirit on your way to work on Monday because Bob is still going to be sitting in the cubicle next to you and you don't like Bob. right? You've moved from knowledge to Understanding. Understanding causes us to ask the question, God, how, 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 how do I love this, this guy? He ir- irritates me. I can't try, right? You, you tracking with me? It's moving from knowledge to understanding. What does it mean for me personally? Wisdom has a lot less to do with intelligence and a whole lot to do with courage. See, they build on each other. Knowledge. The more knowledge we have, the more understanding we have. And the more understanding we have, the greater opportunity we have for wisdom. Wisdom is about having the courage to act on the things that I understand to be true based on the knowledge that I have. Let me say that again. Wisdom is about the courage to act on the things that I understand to be true based on the knowledge that I have. People that are wise in Christianity, people that maybe you're here and other churches you've been a part of, people that you respect and in a mind, people do say they're so wise. They did not wake up one day and just become this wise person. They they became a wise person because they gave their life, a lifetime of the study of God's word. And that knowledge began to give birth to understanding. It became personal. They began to live it out. They begin to do the things that they saw in here. They began to stop doing the things that they saw in here that they were supposed to stop doing. And all of a sudden, over time, they just step into this mantle of wisdom because they demonstrated the courage to be true to God's word. We want to be that church. Part of our commitment to this church. One of the reasons why we cover so much ground so many times on Saturday nights. One of the reasons why we have what we call a teaching pulpit is because we believe that this journey of knowledge and understanding and wisdom can transform people's lives because God's Word is alive. So All right, so Let me just give you a couple of, of, of practical steps because this is part of just building your knowledge base when it comes to stewardship. You, you've got to resource yourself. Maybe you grew up in a home and your parents did not teach you about managing money and you, the, all of that stuff is foreign to you. And, and so you've got to avail yourself to some good Christian resources. Crown Financial is a good one. Uh, Tom Ramsey's book, we do a, a, a uh, it's, is it Tom? Dave, I was like, that does not sound right. Bob's got a great book out there. So Dave Ramsey, we do Total Money Makeover here a couple of times a year in in, in our life group because we want to give people practical help and how you begin to manage all the resources that you've been given. Standard of living is important. We live in a culture that teaches us advance your standard of living first and foremost, right? There's this, it's almost like this competitiveness inside of us that as my income grows, I just want to keep advancing my standard. I see it out there. I just want to go get it. And what we say as devoted followers of Christ, your standard of living should be decided, not based on what you see in the world, but born out of a conversation that you have with God. That all of us should say, God, what's the standard of living that you want me to have? And then we begin to move towards that because that's the place that God has us. So part of finances is there's a lot of praying. There's a lot with a calculator, but there's a lot with prayer. This is one of the biggest ones I find in people's journey, where they get sideways in their finances, is forgetting the difference between monthly and non-monthly expenses right? We understand monthly expenses. It's the bill that we get every month. We know that it's going to come. We've got a good feeling for what it's going to be, and it comes every month. That's easy to plan for, but one of the highest causes of credit card debt in the, in, in, in America today is because of non-monthly expenses. It's the things that, that don't come every month, and they just forget, right? It's maintenance for your car. It's birthdays. It's all those weddings that you're glad you got an invitation to, but now you've got to bring a present, right? And so it's it's Christmas. Maybe your car insurance you pay every six months. You're tracking with me? You and I, we have all kinds of bills. There's not a normal flow to how they happen. and And so what we do is that we see all this money in our checking account. And so we go out and spend it, but we forget that there's a car insurance payment that's coming due in 30 days. So that goes on the credit card. And the next thing you know, we're tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. You've got a part of your financial plan. You've got to make a distinction between monthly and non-monthly expenses. And if you need help with that, you let us know and we'll get you with people that can help you figure that out. Unexpected income. Again, part of stewardship is prayer. We, so many people think it's all about the math, but it's just as much about the journey of prayer. When, when you have unexpected income that comes to you, there should be your, your first response is, God, what do you want us to do with this money? It's part of it because it's all his to begin with. We have such a mindset of mine in this secular world when as a devoted follower of Christ, what what should define us is it's his. And when it comes to us, there should be something inside of us that says, God, what do you want me to do with this? And sometimes, you know what he says? Go and enjoy it. It's a beautiful thing. Sometimes he says to us, give it away. It's part of a conversation. While my material destiny, I want to talk about that because not a lot of people are supportive of that idea. While my my material destiny is ultimately determined by his sovereignty, my progress toward that end is achieved through my activity. If, If you're struggling in stewardship, you just can't sit back and say, God, you've just got to figure this mess out. Because God's already figured it out. What he wants you to do is to do something about it based on what he wants to communicate to you. And part of that's going to happen through getting resource. Part of that's going to be you being willing to reach out to people that you trust here and say, hey, I need some help with that, and we want to help you find the place of financial freedom that God has for you. But this idea of a material destiny, not everybody buys into that. You've got to decide for yourself what you do. But I don't believe that everybody in this world is supposed to be the next Bill Gates. And and there's some crazy teaching in Christian churches about that, that there's this great opportunity. of. I think that everything about our life, there's a destiny attached to it. God's intentional about every part, and so I think there's a material destiny that all of us have been given. I think part of that we find in the parables of the talents. Different people were given different amounts, and that's just not about stewardship of giftings and abilities. It's about stewardship of resources, and God just has a different material destiny for all of us. My dream in this life is not to be wealthy. My dream in this life is to be faithful because if I am faithful in what God gives to me, then I'm going to find my way into whatever wealth he has planned for me. Do not let your dream in this life to be of wealth. Let your dream in this life to be found faithful. And if you are faithful in every season of your life, whatever wealth God has planned for you, it's going to be unavoidable. Number three, last one, the trust. We're finishing up all eight of our reasons with this one, obviously. I think it's self-evident. Let me read you this story that came in this week. Or maybe it was last week. I just wanted to let you know that I really appreciate your sermons on giving. I don't get a whole lot of these letters, so I thought I would read it. Right, on giving, right? We get these letters, but not, the, not this one on this topic. God has been putting on our hearts of late to be, sac- to be more sacrificial and intentional and in our giving to him. So when you started in on the subject of giving two Saturdays ago, we just sat there laughing at God's persistence. In fact, we actually missed my cousin's wedding that night because we really felt that we had to be at church and because they probably didn't want to buy that gift. It's expensive, right? Okay. And God showed up in a big way. Surprise, right? Like we're surprised that God keeps showing up in a big way. It's, it's the nature of God. The nature of God is not to hide. The nature of God is to reveal. Of course God works the way that he does and is asking us to do this at a time when the world would tell us to clinch our fence. Fists tightly around our money, but that just sets the stage for his glory to be revealed. So we're excited that God is giving us every assurance and guidance that we need to faithfully carry out his challenge to us And much of that is through what he's given you to share with the church. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 still just completely blows my mind. It does mine too. I have barely read the book of Malachi. I don't even know who Malachi is. And yet, wouldn't you know it that God put those same verses in front of us twice within the span of about 12 or so hours? I honestly don't know how to convey what it means to hear that the God of the universe is telling us to test him. Even just today, he led me to Ecclesiastes 11 after a search on wind, the word wind, and of all things. So just in case it wasn't already clear, we know he is calling for obedience now in this season. Not later when things are figured out because his kingdom is at stake and because he has work that he wants to do in us. We are praying for cheerful and obedient hearts to live out this calling on our lives. And we are expectant that he will honor that prayer. We know that this season of our lives will yield something special and is building to something that we can't see yet. And we know that these first fruits that we give to his kingdom will help someone out there to know him and to have what they need and in the same way that he provides for us every day of our lives. But we also know that it will be a challenge, especially for me because money has been a heart issue of mine for as long as I can remember. And so we ask that you please pray for us as we live this out. Come on, that's good stuff, isn't it? It's good stuff. Come on, you can clap for that. We want that to be the story of all of our journey, right? In this life together, we call this our, if this is your church home, whether it's tithing or give, whatever it is that all of us are in this journey where we're discovering new and deeper things that God is asking of us, and we just throw ourselves headlong into this journey because we trust the Father's heart. We trust that he always has our best interest at his heart. We trust that when he's asking us to do things that are bigger than ourselves, it's because he believes in us and he wants us to discover the great riches of life this side of heaven. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is one of the first verses God showed me early in my life as a devoted follower of Jesus. And this text is foundational to every part of my life. It's, many, many of you are familiar with this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. So it was in December of 1990 that I made a vow of devotion to Christ, and it was one of my first jobs that... I had out of college I was working for the Christian Children's Fund. I think they've changed their name to Child Fund or Children's Fund now, but it's that organization based out of out of Richmond and I was just working in their call center as a as a customer service representative. It was the beginning of my journey of a professional life outside of college and and uh, and so I had been through all of my training and so when you come out of training, you go out onto the onto the call center floor and you're assigned a certain cubicle and there's nothing in that cubicle right except a terminal and a and a phone and then you can personalize it you you know based on your on, on what you want to do to a degree and and, uh, and so I get there and there's a monitor there's a keyboard and there's a phone but I notice that there's this little and I'm a brand I've, I've been following Jesus just just for for probably just about a month or so and and so I noticed that in the keyboard somebody had stuck something in there and it was a piece of paper that they had laminated with scotch tape you know how before they were laminating machines right you would just wrap that thing in scotch tape to protect it and so in this keyboard whoever had been in there before me left this because they say this is this this is gonna of people we want to be, right? Did you have some sense of providence? Do you have some sense that God's going to use me to touch somebody's life? This is part of what we were referring to earlier. God's going to be whispering to you. His Holy Spirit's going to be prompting you to do things. And I never met the person that was in that cubicle before me, but they left Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, typed out on a piece of paper, laminated with scotch tape, and they stuck it in the keyboard. And that was one of the first verses I ever memorized as a devoted follower of Christ. And it has become foundational to my entire journey. It has defined my relationship with God. It's a relationship of trust. And so we're wrapping up with this one tonight because we don't want you to get lost in the numbers. The numbers are a huge part of the conversation, but that's really, at the end of the day, the smaller part of the conversation. Because if you, if you step into this place of trust in the numbers, they're going to bear themselves out. I was talking with somebody just this week about this idea of giving, and, 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 and they had a great response. They said, I, I, I give, Fred, because God has my heart. Because it's a trust-based relationship. And I hope that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, if you've never checked out that verse before, that maybe you're new to Christianity, that might be one of the first verses that you commit to memory and let that become a foundation to your journey in life. 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. Love this story. Come on, the stories of scripture are rich, are they not? 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. You've got to love this, right? You're going to your pastor for help. Elisha said, What can I do to help you? Right? Tell me, what, what, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. And then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. And pour olive oil from your flask into the jars. Now, many of you, you're not familiar with the flask was. I wasn't either. I had to ask Nate Nowotny what it was. And so he said, It's this really small container. So, okay. You're a little, you a little, just getting that right. You're just sorry. You're a little sorry. Easing in. Some of you didn't want to laugh because you know you know what a flask is, and you didn't want anybody to know that, right? It might be in your pocket right now. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door and pour olive oil. So this little tiny container flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it's filled, right? You can imagine this. What she's thinking? Are Are you crazy? So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon, every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. And when she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what's left over is that not an amazing story every time i read that story i end up in the same place every time god when that's me don't let me stop borrowing pots right because at some point at some point i think this widow and her two sons looked at each other and says this is ridiculous We have this flask of oil. We should have stopped collecting pots hours ago. This is sheer foolishness. You know, as soon as that oil ran out, because of the last pot that they had created, they automatically thought of all those other pots that they left. Probably the big ones, right? There were probably some vats that were there that were empty, like, oh, we should have brought that vat into the house. It's a powerful story of God's goodness, but it is also a powerful story that asks us to ask the question, how deep does our trust go? And let it be for all of us that our trust would go so deep that we would be collecting pots all the days of our lives. See, because every time we give, we are gathering another pot for God to fill in turn, trust him. I'm not saying that because we're trying to treat God like some slot machine. What we're saying is that God's word, whenever he asks us to position ourselves in a place of having less, it's because he's trying to position us into a place of receiving more. And one of the reasons why he wants us to receive more is not just so we can automatically elevate a standard of living, but because sometimes that's part of it, right? Sometimes God says to us, go and enjoy, but sometimes this part of this journey of God trying to get more into it, our hands is because there's more that we have to give, because it postures us in a place of even greater generosity. I invite the worship team to come back up. been saving the psalm until the end. This psalm, you, should, you could argue, should be the beginning and the end of any conversation about stewardship. It is the bookend text when it comes to material resources. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy Place. Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies, they will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Such people may seek you and such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord invincible in battle. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the king of glory. See, like so many psalms, it's written to us in one order, but to be actually understood in the reverse. It's part of the beauty of poetry. If you really want to dig into this psalm, you start at the end and then work your way up through it backwards. See, because it begins by saying that there's this creator in the universe who is the king of glory. There's this creator in the universe who longs to be your father and his glory, his magnificence is beyond human comprehension. And the greatest fulfillment you're ever gonna have in this life is to stand in his presence and just worship him. There's nothing in this life that's gonna be greater than that. That's why that's part of the gift that we're given in eternity. Just be in his presence in a place of worship forever and ever, amen, come on. And then you get into the middle of this text, and it, it's a little bit disheartening because it says who can come. I've told a few lies in my life, and I know you have too, right? It, it's people that have never committed idolatry, never longed for something more than God. Who here hasn't done those things? And all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're given this, this offer that, hey, the deepest kind of fulfillment that you're ever going to have in this life is to stand in God's presence. But I'm sorry, you, you can't come in. Sorry. Sorry. It's what this table is all about. It's what this table is all about. We can come because of Jesus, because he paid a price for you and for me that we can say, God, I am a dirty, rotten sinner to the core. But because of the grace that I can find in your son, I can step into your presence. Come on, even tonight, some of you might be tasting of God's presence for the very first time. It's powerful, isn't it? What's so striking to me is where it ends, those first couple of verses. Think of all the things that God could have put at the beginning of Psalm 24 to be one of the greatest evidences of a person that's walking in the fullness of the relationship with their father. Think of all the things that God could have said, this is what I want to be here. People that have found the glory of a relationship with me and yielded themselves to Christ as they step out into this world, how should I define them? This is how he defines us people who live every day of their lives with the understanding that all that I have belongs to him. All that I have is his. As a person on this planet, my wife, my children, every penny to my name, everything, none of that's mine. Not even myself. I don't belong to myself. I belong to the one who created me. And when I begin to live in light of that revelation, 10% of that, and what, it, none of that matters anymore. Because for me, it's just about being in His presence. It's just about His glory. Stand with me. Father, may it be that tonight that there would be some people that are here that they would feel Your glory maybe for the first time. That maybe tonight in this few moments of worship they would feel something of Your presence like they have never felt before and it would cause them it would cause them to just open up a conversation with you maybe it would cause them tonight to say God is there anything you want to say to me oh God let somebody here tonight ask you that question let somebody here tonight ask you that question God is there is there something that you would show me is there something that you would say to me father For the hearts that are hungry to feel your voice, let it be that there would be a tearing of the veil that separates this temporal realm from the eternal one that we are immersed in, and it would be as though that they are John and the story of Revelation, that they just get a glimpse of your glory, and it would capture our soul. Let's worship together.